So you're gonna, I'm gonna get interviewed by Pete Nordstrom. You are gonna get interviewed by Pete Nordstrom. Wait, should I tell Nicole? <laughs> yeah, my you, publicist is gonna. You be bet. Like, your publicist is gonna want to. I, and I tell people, I <laughs> like, I'm not a professional interviewer. I'm just a. You're just a guy. guy. Like now, our bands are listed together in publication. Did I you know see that. that? I Seattle know that. Times. It's funny. You'll like this. Is today I was at lunch downstairs. So the woman in the <laughs> restaurant that works there, she goes. My dad has seen your band play before, and he right. said you guys have a really good band. I go, well, that's kind of our demographic. Your dad. That <laughs> your is exactly. Dad. Yes. What, that's our Rocking sweet spot. Out dads everywhere. There is no everybody welcome to another episode of the nordy pod i'm pete nordstrom president of nordstrom and your host for this podcast join me as i take you on an honest authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life one episode at a time I bet you're wondering why the theme music has a vocal track this time. Well, in this episode, you're finally going to hear the story behind the music that you've been listening to, and who better to tell that story than the actual singer that you just heard, Shana Shepard. I grew up, unfortunately, with terrible TV shows like Glee and like this Hollywood-esque personification of what the music industry looks like. You got your one big shot. <laughs> this is it. And it's not like that. If I really stop to breathe and disregard my jitters about my own personal crap, I can see that these people are working. And so I should just work, too. But before that, I want to introduce you to the two women who are leading the 15% pledge. Founder Aurora James and Chairwoman Emma Green. As the founder of Brother Veli's, a brand initially aimed at highlighting African artists and shoemakers, Aurora James learned exactly how difficult it is to gain traction as an up-and-coming company, particularly from the vantage point of an underrepresented segment of the population. So in May of 2020, immediately following the death of George Floyd, when people began asking the question, what can we do to help support the black community, Aurora came up with an idea called the 15% Pledge. She took to Instagram, challenging large retailers to dedicate 15% of their shelf space to black-owned businesses. Enter Emma Greed, herself held in extremely high regard throughout the fashion industry, who messaged Aurora directly with an inspired conviction to help this idea grow. Emma, co-founder of the really successful brands Good American and Skims, brought her extensive business background and connections to the table helping to grow the once philanthropic initiative into a larger nonprofit organization. Together, Aurora and Emma have created real tangible and sustainable change for black owned businesses with the goal of building long lasting generational wealth in black communities. Nordstrom is proud to have been an early adopter of the 15% pledge, and I'm super excited to help highlight this really important initiative that has made a big impact on our industry already. So let's get into it. I'm super excited today to be interviewing on the podcast Aurora James and Emma Greed. These are people that I know through just the basic business of what we do, and that is trying to sell the world's best products and offer them up to customers. But what's also interesting here is they are working together on a project called the 15% Pledge. And so there's a lot to unpack here about all of this. But I want to introduce you to both Aurora James, who runs a brand called Brother Veli's, and Emma Greed, involved with the brands Good American and Skims. So here they are. Thanks, you guys, for being here. Hi, Pete. Thank you so much for having us. Hey, Pete. We are so happy to do this today. <laughs> did, did I did I do that professionally? Did it seem okay? Unbelievable. <laughs> Out of control. <laughs> anyway, you guys are nice to do this, and, and I look forward to hearing more about what you're working on. But um, I guess what I want to start with is... 
just talking a little bit about our industry and what brings you guys together. Aurora, maybe we can start with you because it really sounds like this came from you originally. Like, Tell us how the 15% pledge started and actually just what it is to someone that maybe isn't in our industry and doesn't know anything about it. Yeah, absolutely. So the 15% pledge actually came to life a few days after George Floyd was murdered in 2020. And you know, as someone who owns my own fashion brand, I have a lot of retail relationships and a lot of them were kind of reaching out to me in the wake of George Floyd's murder asking like, oh, should we make a donation to the NAACP or Black Lives Matter or how much should we donate? And I was sort of like, hmm, donations are great. We love philanthropy, but there has to be a bigger, better way that major retailers can actually support the black community and do it by doing what they're best at. And so I sat down and I thought like, what could that look like? And I had this aha moment and they said, you know, major retailers should consider committing 15% of their shelf space, i.e. their purchasing power to black owned businesses in America because black people are almost 15% of the population. So I sat, I really marinated on that. And then I thought about, okay, if these retailers started doing that, how would that impact the greater American economic landscape, right? How would it then inspire venture capital? How would it then inspire even like young black women who are graduating college who are starting to think, should I go work for, you know, Procter and Gamble or should I launch this thing that I've been like, you know, working on for so long, maybe there's an opportunity for me. So I really, you know, wrote that all out on the note section of my phone, which is where I like to think all brilliant ideas are born. And I sort of screenshotted it, I posted it to Instagram, and then I tagged every retailer I knew. And, you know, that was a Saturday. Sunday, I stayed up overnight to launch a website by Monday at noon. Okay, it was a petition. So by Tuesday, we had 100,000 signatures. By Wednesday, we were a nonprofit. And by day 10, Sephora became the first major corporation to commit to the 15% pledge. And in that first 12 months, we signed on 28 major retailers and our longest partnership is in fact, drum roll, Nordstrom on a 10 year partnership contract with the 15% pledge. Wow, well, so I wanna start there though. What's kind of interesting is you, you took on this passion project for you. Did you have any sense in that moment that you were creating literally another job for yourself and a whole <laughs> other line of work? And it was going to be more than just like, hey, everybody, let's do the right thing. Like someone's going to have to shepherd this through and run it and create an organization. And uh, was that part of your mindset at the beginning? No, definitely not. <laughs> I was like, Here, if you look at my first post, I said, here's one thing you can do. I didn't say, here's one thing. I want to help you guys do for the next decade. But, you know, everything monumental happens in partnership and happens in community. And I can't in good conscience ask anyone to do anything that I'm not going to be there with them to support and help shepherd along the way. And so for me, all of our partners that take the pledge, I really do think of them as partners because I want to be there with them, making sure that we can all hit this goal together. Because by the way, Pete, like, it's not just the retailers, it's up to us, the 15% pledge as you know, now one of the fastest growing nonprofits in this country to actually make sure that we're supporting black owned businesses in a meaningful way where they're going to be ready, willing and able to scale into the opportunities that the retailers are offering them. But in answer to your question, no, I did not know that I was signing up for a gigantic it is, it other job. It is so crazy that you didn't see that, Aurora, because when I, and, and I have to kind of like take it back to that time because it really, and I think for a lot of people in this country, but especially for a lot of black people in this country, that was like a watershed moment. I was feeling so unbelievably traumatized in that moment. And when I saw Aurora's initial post because we were not friends. We did not know each other. So let's start there. So there was no grand no, plan no. hatched here. This was all happened serendipitously. We met in possibly the most modern way ever. I slid into her DMs. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. I was like, whoa, because I saw the post and immediately, and that's why I say it's so interesting that Aurora didn't think of it like, wow, this is about to be, you know, like the thing that I do in my life because I looked at it and I was like, whoa, 
this is going to change the world. This is going to change the economic makeup of this entire country. And I immediately wrote to Aurora on direct messages and was like, hey, can I help? I see what you're doing. I could see it like I could look into the future and see five years ahead, actually, the impact of the pledge closing the racial wealth gap in this country. And I think what had happened to a lot of people is that, you know, certainly for me, I turned into an Instagram activist. I was so outraged and so appalled at everything I was seeing and reading and then watching happening in real life. And I thought, I have to do something. And seeing what Aurora had created with the pledge or the call to action that she'd actually put out there, I was like, this is incredible. This to me felt so tangible. And being in the position that I am and, you know, without sounding arrogant, you know, because of Good American and because of Skims and because of the other brands that I'm involved in, I can pretty much get any CEO of a retailer in this country on the phone. And to me, suddenly I was like, wow, we can actually make a tangible difference. We can actually show people that are very, very willing to create impact. This is how you do it. Like, this is the way to do it. This goes beyond one-time donations to be something that's actually going to shift what's happening in this country and make opportunities for black entrepreneurs over and over and over again. And so then I think my second call would have been to you, Pete. Yeah, yeah we talked early on. You know, it's interesting you talk about that we all rush in to solve problems in a very temporary way through a check or something that is episodic, right? But it rarely has teeth to it in a way that gets traction and becomes a sustainable thing. And that I find it pretty interesting that your instincts were, were like, I, I want to make something out of this that's sustainable and actually does good and creates partnerships. And so how did you get to the place where you felt like you had a template where you know stores like us could participate in this? Yeah, I mean, it had to happen really quickly. So it was an idea on the Saturday and by Wednesday when we sort of you know, became a nonprofit through fiscal sponsor, like I realized at that point, like, wait, this is going to take a whole organization because even the people that started, you know, coming forward and saying like, okay, we want to do this. The question was how? Well, and I remember even at that time, what exactly is this? What, what is it exactly that we're committing to doing and how's this going to work? Totally. And, and everyone was like, okay, 15%, but like, where are we now? Yeah. Who's going to measure this? How's that all going to work? No, totally. (laughs) So that was like some of the earliest work that we started doing, right? Like step one was really about taking stock and figuring out where everyone's at. So how many black owned brands do you have now? How many black people do you have in your boardroom? How many black people do you have in your like executive office? Anywhere, anywhere that you can take stock, but most importantly, like with the actual brands. And listen, like when I came up with that idea, I knew that no one was at 15%. I didn't realize that like basically everyone was like below 3%. So it actually is a long way to go. It's a lot of work to do. And then the second is like unpacking that, like just saying like, how did we get here? Because knowing how we got there, we can sort of start addressing like the things that are first and easiest to tweak that can be run a little bit more efficiently to make sure that diversity is just kind of baked into everything that we're doing instead of like this extra mile that we feel like we always have to go. And then the step three is commitment to growth. And that's really where we're pegging out with our retail partners. Like, what does this look like? What are we confident in committing to doing every year to make sure that we're making some growth and that it's happening in a healthy way? Because this wasn't meant to be like, you know, a crash diet for anyone. It's really meant to be a lifestyle change. Yeah. You know, it's one of the things I really appreciated about you guys when you got going on this, because there were a lot of questions about how it was all going to work. And it's not just the spirit of intent, but it's how do we literally do that, have that kind of shelf space and inventory from black founded or owned brands? Oh, and we spoke about it at length. But I think two things to make really clear from the outset. We are in the business of working with businesses on both sides of what we do. So when we're talking to you, Pete, but also when we're talking to these young founder, owner operated businesses. So this is a commercial endeavor. And Aurora and I both came at it from that viewpoint that this has to work for both the businesses that we're there to support and propel, but also for the pledge takers. That's the first thing. 
When we talk about the pledge, it's not like holding your hand in the air and pledging allegiance, right? This is a contract. This is a contractual <laughs> commitment to take our retailers from where they are today, and typically that is at a very low percentage, to a better place. But we want to do that in a way that is commercially mindful. That means signing the right businesses. That means ensuring success for those businesses once they get into the retailer. And so the, the idea that this is an incredible thought through and thoughtful approach is just an imperative. It has to be that way because we need these bands to be successful once they get in the retailer. So there's an enormous amount of work that the team is doing, the 15% pledge team is doing to you know, get those brands ready for the exposure once they get into a Nordstrom, a Sephora or, or anybody else that signed the pledge. But there's also the idea of like, what is going to work for your business? And it isn't a one size fits all approach, but it has to be done in a way that's going to be successful otherwise we won't be successful yeah you were really clear about it's not just so much about hitting a specific number it's much more about the spirit of intent and if the only thing that comes from this is that it grows and improves then we've accomplished something there too because you know i was kind of hung up on the exact number and exactly we get there and how do we define you know if a brand is in fact owned by a black founder like i mean there was there was just a lot of stuff there is no clearinghouse for this information in our industry i mean we had, you know where are we going to figure all this stuff out and you know cuz also when you're us you're just trying to turn people loose out there to buy the best stuff that customers are going to love and what you've talked about was well this shouldn't be in conflict with that i mean we've got all kinds of different customers you're trying to serve you know, maybe we can bring to light and introduce you to some vendors that are out there you might not know about, which we were really interested in. But I, I was really comforted, Emma, when you talked about just, well, look at, we're here to make progress and we think we can do that with you. Are you up for that? I'm like, absolutely. So that's really how it's happened. Yeah. And I think that's like not an unimportant part of all of this, because when, um, you know, when I first started speaking to Aurora, we were talking about there were lots of different retailers approaching this in different ways. And what we saw was actually a lot of, you know, POs written for black owned brands with very little thought strategy or long term prospects put beside that, right? And actually, what does that do? Well, that does more damage than good. Because actually, you know, if you don't, if you're not sitting there making this pledge and saying, we're in it for the long term, we're going to support these businesses to make them successful, then you actually, you're just, you're just an irritant. You're just actually further exacerbating the problem and making these businesses scramble for what, one season of orders? That isn't progress. That isn't sustainable. And so I think that we took a very mindful approach to who are going to be the best partners that are going to really put resource behind this. Because we know, that signing the pledge is just the very beginning. Once we get through that contractual process and we decide, well, what are the guardrails here? How are we actually making progress? We've got to actually do the work and we need you guys and the other pledge takers to staff that appropriately, to be thinking about it properly and to continue to, you know, be the driving force. Um, and I think that that's why, you know, what we're doing and, and it's, I think dreamy to me when I sit down with Aurora and we look at our impact reports to see the progress that's being made is probably the most satisfying thing out of all of this, like because it's actually working. Yeah, so tell me about that. I mean, it's been a year or whatever since this has happened. Tell me about the progress. Is it on the tracks? I mean, oh is my it happening? Gosh. Are you feeling good about it? It is very much on the tracks. And I constantly am pinching myself. I have to be honest with you. So far, like through our contractual commitments, we're moving over $10 billion to Black-owned businesses across this country, which is pretty monumental. It's actually the single largest driver for Black American entrepreneurs that the country has ever seen. Wow. Yeah, it's impressive. Pretty major. <laughs> <laughs> it's really impressive. And, you know, I think that when, again, um, just trying to dispel myths, because I think when you think about the pledge, people are like, right, they're getting brands onto the shelves, which is one part of what we do. When we think about like the brand assortment and the shelf space, that is what we're here to do. But actually what we've seen from our pledge takers is that the work takes them way deeper. We're talking about marketing and representation. We're talking about workforce development and how all of that actually becomes you know, part of what the pledge is ushering these retailers through. And so um, I think while Aurora started out with a very, very simplistic ask that was going to have this huge amount of impact, you're seeing the ramifications across all areas of the retailer's business. And that is something that I think is like so special and so important because we're making the change that we wanted to see right in the beginning. And ultimately, you know, 
people always ask me like, what do you think of the businesses that haven't taken the pledge? And I'm like, ooh, like I worry about them, but also I don't think about them at all because this is the way of the future and we're all just moving forward. If people are really stuck in the past, they're gonna stay there. We can't really afford to worry about people who are gonna age themselves out of relevancy because they don't want to modernize and get with the times. Yeah, I, yeah. I do, you know, I often think about it, Pete, because Aurora's right, you know, when she started Brava Valleys, sustainability was one of those things where everyone's like, oh, really? Like, what are those shoes gonna be made of? What are those bags gonna look like? Now, you can't get through any board meeting, you know, uh, earnings call, whatever moment it is in your business that matters, you cannot get through that without touching on sustainability. I just became B Corp certified with Good American. It's one of the proudest things that we've ever done. But, you know, it, it is absolutely at the tip of every single person's agenda who's in business. And I think this conversation around racial equality is going to be exactly the same. We are going to look back and the businesses who decided not to move forward and not to progress are just going to seem like really out of step and really out of touch and will wonder what they were ever thinking. And so, you know, there are the progressives and the first movers and we love them. And there are those that are a little bit more slow to get on the train. We we love them equally. We'll work with them too. And then there's those that are not going to move. And that's just not our business. That's not where we're at. We're with the people that are in business. As I said, the 15% pledge, it's a, it's a commercial thing. So we got to be with the people that are actually going to be around in 10 years and have a business. Right. So Rory, you, you go from being a, from a pretty small company where you're a founder designer of these really beautiful products. And you know, we've got them in our store, we got them online and you should, if customers are unaware of this, you go, should go check it out, Brother Valley's. It's There's some really beautiful products there. But then all of a sudden you, you become like this activist. And again, you, you basically just created a, a whole new job for yourself. But talk a little bit about starting a company like you did, what was it, in 2013 and being small and trying to get into business with a big company like Nordstrom? So I started Brother Valley's with, in 2013 with $3,500 at a flea market in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So really, when we talk about this proposition of being a black founder and working with retailers, like I know it really intimately from a lived experience. And, you know, Nordstrom for me was a huge unlock for my business. But also starting my business when I was so young and knew nothing about business, it was really hard. You know, one thing for us at Brother Valley is because it is very much an artisan proposition. Like we make shoes and bags in workshops all across Africa, South Africa, Kenya, Morocco, Ethiopia, Burkina Faso, but also like Mexico, Italy, Haiti, and America. And so for me, it's really always about working with underrepresented artisan communities on making things that are culturally significant and relevant to them that oftentimes are sort of just on the mood boards of other designers and not actually on shelves or coming to life in a very real way. And really, when you think about the proposition of Brother Valley's, it's actually not that much different than the proposition of the pledge. And it's been a really beautiful experience because in a lot of ways, listen, Pete, like, you know, I was the first black woman to win a CFDA award. I've had a That's lot right. of firsts with Brother Valley's as like a black female designer. And when I used to call the brand sustainable, I have to tell you guys, like people would cringe. They would be like, ooh, like, does that mean burlap or what does that mean? You know? <laughs> Are you like, making no, everything out of hemp over there or what are you totally, doing? <laughs> totally. And I was like, no, guys, it's just like we're trying to be thoughtful about our carbon footprint in the environment. And they're like, OK, but like, can we keep it sexy on the shoes? And I'm like, yeah, we can keep it sexy, you know. So <laughs> it's really in a lot of ways, I've had a deep belief that you can be an activist just by doing the things that you love, that you're passionate about, and doing it in a way that's like profitable and joyful. And I think even, you know, to both of the points that you guys made earlier, you know, and you were saying like as a retailer, like part of your job is to find like the best, most amazing products for your customers, right? And I think what we're saying at the pledge is like, we wholeheartedly believe that. And I think because black and brown brands have been historically excluded because they just haven't had, 
you know, the access. So it's like, what is this whole other world of incredible products that we're going to be able to unlock through the 15% pledge because we're able to cast a much wider net. And I think about myself with Brother Valley's, we've been lucky to have, you know, really great shelf space and really robust customer. And we've had a certain level of success that, you know, kind of makes us a little bit of an outlier. And like, what then happens, right? If you open that up to a lot of other women that look like me too, it's not just a blessing for the black community. It's actually a blessing for all of us. Yeah, you know, I was I was talking to Olivia Kim today, who's the person that got you, you know, your start here at Nordstrom. I was asking her a little bit about that, but maybe you can tell that story. But we actually just had Olivia on a, a, one of these episodes talking about her career journey. But her whole job is to go out there and discover new things that people might not know about. And what was it, 2015 or so, she got connected with you somehow, and we started carrying these shoes. I remember seeing these shoes. It was like a chuck-up boot or something. It was like, and there was a whole story behind it that was so captivating, and I'm sure you know, really compelling to many of our customers. So, but let's talk a little bit about you got started with Olivia, and she comes in representing Nordstrom, and says, "Yeah, I think we'd like to buy this." What what was that moment like? So, first of all, Olivia Kim, what a gem! I mean, I think this woman has a whole chapter in my book, by the way, because she's just such an amazing light. She, so I had met her, I think in 2015, and the Veli, for those that don't know, is actually a traditional South African shoe shape. It's kind of the original shoe that evolved in Southern Africa on that continent. It started off with just being leather that wrapped around your foot, and then it became three pieces of leather with a rubber sole. And so we make those in a very old South African workshop by hand, and they've been made there since the 1800s, and you know, British people had come to Southern Africa and found them and brought them back up to England and renamed them a desert boot and created a company called Clark's. But we kind of make the original Veli. And I, you know, had mutual friends with Olivia, sort of knew her, and she really fell in love with the shoes, fell in love with the story and placed an order for Nordstrom, which was amazing. And you know, she was like, do you have any images? And I was like, of course. I didn't, obviously. <laughs> you got your cell phone out and started taking pictures of your shoes. <laughs> well, basically, I like went to South Africa and, you know, worked on that production order and shot all of the shoes on the the, the artisans, the guys in our, in our workshop were actually making the shoes. And then you guys gave me at Nordstrom, I think, nine store windows across America. And they had these huge pictures of our artisans wearing the shoes. And to this day, like those pictures, and there's a picture on my Instagram that you can still see, which is like me at a Nordstrom store jumping in front of the store window because I was just like (laughs) so elated and mind blown. And I really saw and learned firsthand just how much the support of a major retailer can be a huge game changer for a small business. You know, Olivia wrote my reference letter to get into the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 yes. She wrote that reference letter, which, you know, ended up going to Anna Wintour. And thank God I ended up winning the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund, which helped. But it just shows how early on, you know, Nordstrom was such an incredible partner that then, like, helped get us all the way to being here on this podcast today. <laughs> yeah, we've all come a long way. That's good. No, it's a good story. I, I know a little bit about it. And I, I really like these entrepreneurial stories where we get a chance to bring discovery to customers. It's not easy to do. But Emma, I want to go over to you. So talk a little bit about you know your history with us. And we've known each other for a little while. When we first met, I think it was through frame denim that, you know, do you not or did you not ever work on the frame thing? Because I, I felt like the first time we met each other is when you were attached to frame or was it just like, and here's Yen's wife, Emma. And here's Yen's wife, Emma. <laughs> it's really? so true. I mean, it's so funny because Yen's and I, we've actually had a number of businesses together, but Frame was never one of them. I was just a very, very happy wearer. Okay. Your husband was involved with, and I thought you were attached in some way, but really when we started working together is when you launched Good American with Khloe Kardashian, and you had pretty ambitious ideas about what you could do with a denim line and a lifestyle brand that was 
in a lot of ways never really been done before. It's so true. It, I came and I pitched you, Pete, and it was it was one of those like classic early days, half-baked idea. I'm an excellent saleswoman, even if I do say so <laughs> myself. And I came with like half a piece of fabric, about four inches, and a big PowerPoint presentation. I was like, so, Pete Nordstrom, let me tell you what I've got cooking. <laughs> and it was just one of those moments, you know, early days of Good American, when it was really just... You know, we had this idea to do denim, right? There's so many companies that do denim and it was just about this inclusivity piece. I was like, I'm a young black female founder. This brand is going to look like nothing else in premium denim just because it comes from my viewpoint with my lens and my aesthetic. And I'm going to make it in all the sizes. And you said to me, well, yeah, great. Like, what's all the sizes? And I said, well, it'll be about 15 sizes. And you literally looked at me like I was crazy and you said oh so you're doing plus size and I was like yeah but you can't call it plus size and you can't put it in the plus size department and I just want it all together and you were definitely like ah this girl's got a lot to learn yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean there was a lot of ambitious plans and you are a good salesman by the way Emma that was it was all super compelling I remember that you talk about multiple categories you want to be in but why don't you just update people a little bit about what that means and you launched this what in 2016 and was I reading something like it's the biggest single launch of an apparel brand of all times or something? You know, we have it here at Nordstrom. I know it's very successful here. Could you give us some idea just about the journey that you've had at Good American so far? Yeah, absolutely. I remember the um, having the opportunity to meet you guys, but the idea of Good American really came about because, you know, I'd spent the 15 years prior in my career working, you know, uh, I'd founded an agency that was an entertainment marketing agency. We had a lot of fashion clients and I was constantly just being asked to, you know, put partnerships together and create castings that kind of like, you know, would present this idea of diversity and the idea of inclusivity without actually either the product to back it up and certainly without ever having any executives that mirrored, you know, like the image that was being propelled in these campaigns. And I just thought to myself, wouldn't it be great to start a company that was run by a black woman? So it would be diverse by the very nature of who is making the decisions. And, you know, inclusivity was just not being done. You had plus size clothes and you had regular or missy size clothes, as we say in the industry. And I, that just wasn't my experience of how women want to be spoken to or how women want to dress. And so Good American was born out of this idea of going, forget what the industry says, forget how the industry wants to separate one size of woman from another size of woman. And on the back of all of that, there must be a retailer that's smart enough to get it and smart enough to, you know, get on board from the beginning. And that's why I approached you guys, because you had such an incredible business and you'd supported Frame from the beginning. And I knew that, you know, you were really seen as this retailer with this exceptional service element. And I knew that if I was making denim in 15 sizes, somebody was going to need to explain that to customers, to be like, you know, my voice when I wasn't around. And so it was probably one of the best decisions that we ever made to launch with Nordstrom. And that's why actually, you know, you really were my first call. When I, you know, teamed up with Aurora, I was like, Nordstrom will get this. Like Pete Nordstrom is about supporting young entrepreneurs and they will understand why not only is this a good thing to do, but why it matters and why it's a thing to put some resource behind. And, you know, I'm really proud of what we've been able to do together and the impact that it's had. But more than that, that we've actually created another, you know, another arm to our business partnership because what we're doing at Nordstrom is bringing in some really incredible black owned brands and they're having great success with the business. And I just think that we'll look back at this at five years time and be like, well, of course we did it. What else? Like there was, you know, this was the right time and the right thing to do. And it makes a lot of commercial sense. I love that. I mean, it was, it all gets back to what we've talked about all along and that's the spirit of intent about this whole thing. And if, if we're all working together, progress is going to be made. So I, I'm curious also from your point of view, Roar, have you, have you seen this kind of play out over the last year and, and also with your own experiences starting a brand, like what do you think us specifically or a company like ours could do better? I think that there's still a lot more opportunities to engage customers in founders. All of the people across this country that are 
bullish and in love with the idea of supporting diverse founders, like want to have more moments of joy at stores, realizing like, oh my God, this is that brand that I saw on Instagram that is black founded or woman founded. Here it is in the pancake aisle. Oh my God, I have to buy this pancake mix, you know? And so part of, I think what I've been getting so excited about in the pledge is like, how do we work with you guys, for example, to tell more stories of that journey along the way with founders? And in the same way where Nordstrom is such an incredible part of the Brother Valley's story. It's like, how do we now bring that to life and storytell around the entire journey and that experience of being on the shelves and really allow the consumers to bring something into their home that they have such an emotional attachment to that you helped shepherd to them truly in more ways than one. Because it's not just about putting it on the shelf space now. It was about being one of the people in the room to actually stand up and say, yes, we are willing to commit to this and create a whole broader economic ecosystem for black founders. And you guys should be proud of that. And your customers are really excited about that. So how do we sort of bring that all together even more and storytell around that joy, which I think is, a, is sort of the next frontier of what we should all be doing. It's interesting how you bring that up because it runs at the cross-section a little bit of how retailing is done. It's really changed. That makes that difficult. So, you know, a big part of our thing is discovery, and inspiration around discovery. And you're right, customers love that stuff. If you give them the backstory on something, it makes a big difference. And particularly in subjects like you're engaged with. I mean, you you talk about the sustainability deal, the eco-conscious ethos that runs through your brand, and then the whole idea about inclusivity and diversity. These are all great subjects that have broad appeal. Well, you know what, Pete? It's so interesting because I think, like, just back to your earlier point really quickly, because Nordstrom have done an extraordinary job since signing the pledge. And I think that there will be a lot of people that listen to this. Of course, there's more retailers out there that haven't signed the pledge than those that have. And I think you're right, right, that we came to this partnership with such good and clear, really, really good intentions. But that era of good intentions really has lapsed. And I think that we're two years now since the murder of George Floyd, and we've had a lot of time to grapple with good intentions. Now you have to put your money where your mouth is. And I think that there is this huge misconception that Black-owned brands are only for Black people, and that's just not the case. And so I think that one of the things we can do is stop pigeonholing Black-owned brands, right? They're not just for one small slithering segment of the audience. They're actually for everybody and everyone can enjoy these brands. And so I do think that as retailers, it's our job to actually take customers on a journey, but to not choose the segment of customers that we're taking on the journey. This needs to be a wide, you know, broad marketing program that's for everyone and then treated and spent and backed up to that point, right? It's like, let's just from the outset, think about these things in the broadest possible view, which is that a lot of people might like this lipstick. Like, end of, right? Just, you know, it, right. it can be much more simple. But I think as, as, it can't, as it pertains to discovery, this piece on storytelling is really important because every time a customer opens their wallet, they're making a decision. And now they are not voting just with like what looks cute, but it's like, what aligns with my values? What purpose do I feel that this brand represents that aligns with my purpose? It's a, we're, we're a very, very long way from, you know, when I was younger, it was just all about the brand. I was like, just give me the brand and whatever logo you could stick on, like fantastic. That is not how people make their decisions now. And so going that little bit deeper, taking that extra time to really establish a brand, tell the story, familiarize it with the audience, create that online and bespoke experience, all of that makes a difference. And I think you create more loyal customers. And then, of course, they're coming back more frequently. They're spending more and all of the other stuff just falls into place. Okay, so Emma, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Aurora. So if you're me, like, like, What kind of advice do you have for us about how we could evolve some of these practices that have been done in our industry a long time to be a more relevant and modern brand that appeals to people that definitely, because I I agree with you, that more and more are shopping in a way that's aligned around their values? Well, I think, first of all, it's about, you know, realizing that that is what's happening and really making sure that when the decisions are being made, they're coming from this really, like, 
broad viewpoint. Because actually, the brilliant thing, and you know, obviously, as a as a black female founder, I've always prioritised building, uh, you know, a diverse and inclusive team, and mentoring people, and giving people the, you know the the ability to speak and contribute in a meeting but that is one of the reasons that my businesses have grown so fast and been so successful in such a small amount of time because at the table is all of this opinion is all of these different you know backgrounds education uh, economic the race like everything and so i think just from the beginning like who's making the decisions and are they diverse like is that a group of people that we trust to make the decisions for the next you know generation of our business and if that is right i think that we can all sit there and say well fantastic like we're going to make the best decisions for our customer but if it isn't then we have to make some changes and i think that's the hard bit to grapple with people might be doing a really fantastic job for the business of yesterday but right. are they doing the best job for the business that we're all trying to create five years in the future and that's some of the things that we really have to be honest with ourselves and say are we making the hard decisions to move our businesses on to actually make a tangible step change in what's happening that's great well i just want to thank both of you for for what you're doing and uh, i'm inspired by taking on the cause and, and doing it in a way that's got so many practical applications and in a lot of ways solves problems for us too. I mean, we, we're all dealing with the same issues, the same problems, and there's a way of working together with brand partners that is just a better way. And I, I just appreciate the spirit under which you guys have gone about this. And, uh, you know, we've made progress and all that, but I'm, I'm the first to admit, we got a long ways to go. So thanks for holding us accountable. We'll keep doing our part. And I want to wish you both a lot of success with your own brands, too. I mean, you guys are, are great business people and entrepreneurs, and we're, we're proud to do business with you. So, so thanks so much for being a part of this and sharing your story. Oh, my gosh, Pete. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for creating you know, this home for not only Brother Valley's and Good American, but also the 15% pledge. Yeah, we're super grateful to you, Pete. You guys are absolutely doing such an incredible job. And I think we're very proud to be in partnership with Nordstrom. Awesome. So good speaking <laughs> to you, Pete. Thank you. All right, now we're going to switch over to my chat with Shayna Shepard, a real rising star in the Seattle music scene. I happened to have met Shayna a few years ago as our bands crossed paths together at various events. But more recently, as Nordstrom started down a path of trying to find some music to accompany our marketing campaigns, Shayna's name popped into my head as the perfect voice to attach the particular song we chose. So now join me as we learn a little more about how she came to be sitting here with me today. I am so happy, Shana, that you're here on the podcast with me. I'm here with Shana Shepard, superstar of the Seattle music scene. And I, I feel like I got a little setup to do to explain why it is that we're talking other than it's just something fun for me to do with someone I admire and think is awesome. Yeah. So anyway, Shana, thank you mm. for, for being here. Pleasure to be here. So Nordstrom embarked on a process of we do all this marketing kind of stuff with images and we've never really used music as part of that process and part of the hook. And so the creative team was saying, okay, well, we think it'd be great if we came up with a song that we could use and attach to multiple campaigns and we could use it for a while. So it becomes kind of associated with Nordstrom, becomes our thing. And so they said, Pete, would you be interested in being involved in this? We'd like to have you be involved. And I said, well, I'd be interested in doing it, but I want to make sure you understand if you're asking me to be involved, I'm going to be involved. So He's going to pick up a bass. Well, I wasn't, <laughs> going to do, I wasn't going to do that. But I said, I have opinions about these things. And mm -hmm. since it's an opinion-based deal, I'm going to, if you want me, I'm in. She goes, well, we want you. It's like, okay. So the, the process started where, okay, here's all these famous songs we could use. And I'm like, you know... Those songs are so ubiquitous and out there and so much in the public domain, it's almost like they're not attached to anything. It's right. like you don't hear them. If you see them on TV, it's just, yeah, you know what I mean? It's just a part of like the American ether That's of right. information. So it's not personal. So I said, you know, one of the things we could do, if we could take a song and re-record it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I happen to know some people that I think would do a great job. That he's rocked out with. That's right. Pete <laughs> <laughs> so that was part of it. 
And then we might not have to pick the world's most famous song, but maybe a song that felt familiar, but yeah. not necessarily familiar. So then that's when I got Ben London, right. who you know, buddy of mine. I said, Ben, can you help me with this project? Because you kind of know everybody. And he's a creative guy. And we started thinking about different songs. And he came right. up with this song, Another You by Lee Fields. And what happened then is I said, you know, we should get Shana Shepard to do this. What did you recommend me? Yes. But Ben... <laughs> Ben obviously knew all about you, but I said, that's who we should get. And part of the reason you were on my mind, two reasons. First of all, my band had played a show with yours a couple of years ago, right. and you I was really impressed then. I was impressed with y'all, too. Oh, well, thank you. I'm really, but no, it's really But no good. one's calling up me to play on <laughs> well, their Sonic listen, you're intimidating, <laughs> but it's a rad band. Stag, it's yeah. rad. So once I kind of knew what the song was, that she would be great at this. And Ben goes, yeah, let's do it. And then we kind of pulled together the Seattle All-Stars to kind of be your backing band in the studio. So Mike Musburger on drums, he right. was amazing, or Rebecca Young on bass, incredible, mm-hmm. and Ty Bailey on keyboards, and Jeff Fielder. And yeah. these guys might not be household names, but they're all just monster musicians. And I think people that are musicians around town all know who those guys are. Yes. So that's kind of my quick way of telling the story of how this came to be. So I'm, I'm really interested to kind of know, really, from your point of view, you. You got a call from what, from Ben saying, would you sing on this project? He's like, hey, do you want to go to the studio from this day to this day and work on this thing? That's all I had. That's all you I had? mean, who knew? Who knew? <laughs> Showed up to the studio. I didn't even know who was going to be there. Was it intimidating for you to all of a sudden be playing with like these major dudes? At the time, yeah. I was just like a scared animal like in a box. It was the, p- the middle of a pandemic and I hadn't like even collaborated with anybody for months. It didn't strike me you're nervous. I mean, listen to the performance. I mean, you had the ability, I think, to really lean in and do what you do. And I don't know okay. if that felt that way to you. Do you felt like you were inhibited or do you feel like this is a good opportunity for me? I can, I'm going to lean in and go for it. You know, I think, you know, I'm a millennial. So I grew up, unfortunately, with terrible TV shows like Glee and like all that just persona, this Hollywood-esque personification of what the music industry looks like. You got your one big shot, <laughs> you know, like this is it. This is all, all yeah. the bananas. And it's not like that. It's like, hey, everybody in this room is coming to work right now. I can, if I really stop to breathe and just disregard my jitters about my own personal crap, I can see that these people are working. And so I should just work too. Then as soon as the work is done, complete emotional piece of shit again. I'm just like, I'm sorry, I'm going to run away. I can't talk to you. You're, you're a huge person to me. So let's, let's kind of back up a little bit. Tell me where you came from and how you got to this place that all of a sudden you were getting these great opportunities in Seattle. I know, right? I was born in the shoe, women's shoes department downstairs. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's a good gonna, answer. That's right? Good so but you, you're from... I'm from local. everywhere. I'm from New York and I'm from Tacoma. My parents split when I was younger and I ended up moving in with my grandma in New York City. So I was with her until I was like seven. Then I started going back and forth between Tacoma and uh, Flatbush, New York City. And then um, I finished out high school in Tacoma, the, f- the second half. First half was in New York City. And then I went directly to school here in Washington. I went to Ellensburg. I don't know why I did that. I was, yeah, I mean, we were talking about n- that. Not a lot of black folks in the. Uh, right. Ellensburg, we were talking there? about that. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, it's not even like black culture. It's just, it was just kind of an isolating kind of spot for somebody like me but i did learn a lot about country music so were you a music major there is that what you were studying i did and then i flunked out i did bad i left after two years because i couldn't hack it because i wasn't a grown-up yet so you weren't going to class and doing what you're supposed to be doing i got really excited i mean i wasn't like a party or anything i was definitely a nerd but i just all i wanted to do was practice i didn't want to deal with like english 101 i'm like i don't want to do this this is not for me so did you know at that point, like, you want to be a singer, that was going to be your thing? No. Ugh, it's embarrassing to say, but the truth is I was in love with somebody and I just kind of followed them around for a couple of years. You followed them to Ellensburg? That's how you ended up in Ellensburg? Yes. Because of a guy? Right. Wow. I know. It's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. I wrote a song about it, it happens, though. It's the yeah. best thing that came out of it. <laughs> and then that kind of made me put roots in Washington. And I started uh, kind of coming to Seattle Try to start getting some gigs and stuff. I didn't really know what I wanted to do for a long time. So what were you doing for like a, a job at that point? I mean, when I first moved to Seattle, moved here, I was working at the Seattle Symphony, but in their phone room. I got hired by, I like, dist- I mean, I came from some crap. I was living on the street at one point. Pete, Pete Nordstrom. Oh. I lived on the street at one point. And um, 
just like trying to figure out how to be an adult. I was married, you know, young. I'm telling you my whole my whole situation. Yeah, that's good. I was married really young. I didn't get a lot of life skills through that experience. Um, I got left, you know, and then I kind of felt like abandoned. I didn't really know what to do. So that was my float through life. And I landed at the Seattle Symphony because I always just kept arts organizations in my mind. That's where I come from. So, but, I mean, you obviously had this gift that you could sing and you knew this, but so you had an interest in performing at the same time. And so you were trying to get in bands and that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was never, when I was, um, when I was young and I got married, I was in a very conservative world where it was not appropriate for me to be a singer. In my family and in, in my ex's family and in our relationship, it was definitely my role to support him and his growth and endeavors and for me to be um, at home and creating a, a family life. So I always had that little hope and dream that's, you know, that maybe one day I could sing. And it wasn't until um, I got some autonomy to myself, I got my own space, got my own job and was like, this, what do I do as a hobby that I went on Craigslist and started looking up like, you know, bands, opportunities, gigs. I got some auditions for some like, you know, crust, some crusty punk bands or whatever. And so I started my own crusty punk band because that's all I knew. When did you know you were a good singer? Like there was something to pursue there. Was there kind of an aha moment? Like, oh man, I think I really got a gift here. Because I mean, you, you to be honest do. with you, you're probably a great singer. I mean, at the Nordstrom flagship store. <laughs> well, I mean, but you'd been doing this. It takes a certain, you know, confidence and determination and purpose to do it because it's not like there's a bunch of big money at that level. It's like, right. You got to do it because you want to do it. I mean, but so was there a tipping point? It's like, I don't even, I feel like it's a tipping so, point happening right it's now. It's happening right now because before the pandemic, and I keep saying that, that really changed my whole life. Like I had a nine to five job. I got laid off. I was teaching students in person like little kids you know and so you're teaching what vocal voice voice. and beginning piano like barely like Uh this is a c you know (laughs) like and then the pandemic happened i had no job and i didn't have anything to do you know there was i had a crazy breakup i was just like me by myself so my friends were all musicians online struggling to figure out what to do so it became a hobby first to play piano for people and sing for people by myself. Then when the protests happened in Capitol Hill, people were reaching out to me because of the way that I make music and the things that I've thought about to be a part of that movement. And that brought me into a new community of people that supported me as a solo artist. And so this is all very new. It's like every day there's a new opportunity, a new thing to try. And now um I just got, I've just in the past month or two, I've gotten emails from old jobs and old, you know, opportunities like, hey, we're opening our doors back up. You want to come back? When I first saw that first email from my old gig, I just stared at it like, I don't know what to do right now. I don't know if I should just go back to that job Mm -hmm. or if I should continue this career right now. And that was really, it was really going to your store, going to New York and seeing how this group of people that have no idea who I am, they're just walking down the street, listening to a show. And the fact that they responded and stopped, that was when I was like, okay, so it's real. Yeah, so I mean, I, th- I think about when you guys were in the studio and you're, and you're playing with these super hot shot players and it's a cool song and the whole thing's kind of teed up and like, okay, Shanna, here you go, like do it. And I was there for much of that right. session. Oh, I have to mention the first time I saw you at that studio session. Okay. Because I didn't know who you were. You're standing <laughs> on the wall. I'm not very memorable. You had a mask on, okay? And I haven't seen you <laughs> in three years. The last time I was drinking whiskey at like a dive bar right before you guys, after you guys played. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm like, everybody's making music, whatever. Who is that guy? <laughs> Nobody answers me. Yeah, so I, I introduced myself to. I said, I don't know if you remember. We've met before, but you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So you were faking it, weren't you? I was faking it. I was like, yeah, nice to see you. Yeah, yeah nice to see you, bro. And I was like, you play music? And he's like, yeah, I play the bass. And I was like, huh? Let me see your fingers. Oh, and then he shows these fingers, and I was like, oh, you haven't been playing the bass recently then I guess everybody the entire room stopped what they were doing and they turned and look at us and I was like what did I do and then you were like yeah I know I gotta I gotta get back in there so, and start playing again so funny you connected the dots but yeah that was uh that was me and I remember 
I think the thing that struck me is you guys were all doing your thing. And then when you all came back to listen to a playback, everyone's kind of buzzing about it and feeling good. And I remember like Jeff and Rebecca were dancing around in the right. control booth, the, you know, the, <laughs> by the mixing board. It's like, and that was a very spontaneous and real moment. And these guys are all, you know, great players and done a lot of stuff. And you could tell they, they thought it was good. And then we got working on it here at Norseman and agreed to do it and kind of tie it back to the campaign. And, you know, and then since that time, you've, I mean, you made a video that's out there now. Right. You've, you know, talked about Nordstrom stuff. You did a block party thing for Nordstrom that was a big deal. You performed a few weeks ago with John Legend <laughs> at a Nordstrom event. Right. That was amazing. For his it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. So there you were with John Legend. You didn't seem nervous about that either. And, you know, and then you did this benefit for Smooch for Seattle Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. A lot of people there opening up for Modest Mouse. And right. so, You've had these these Plus, big you guys, opportunities. You guys flew me out before any of that for my first ever model campaign. Yeah, that's right. Part You're part your, of the holiday campaign. Yeah, I never ever thought I would ever do anything like that ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's all just like a dream a little bit. Yeah, I didn't really. I thought like the train was on the tracks for you about music. That this was kind of your thing, and you've been doing it and kind of slugging it out and mm-hmm. trying to make it. I didn't realize that at all. It's really been the last couple of years where it's. Really coming right. I feel like I'm a new like it's a new world for me. I had a different life, you know. But I've been a really hard worker and a consistent person. So I feel like it's just like when you fall into any field, you know, you just commit to it. Okay, so I got another question. So like so what's next? I mean, this is an opportunity, it's a springboard, but in and of itself, it's not a career. So, like, what do you think's happening next? What do you want to see happen next for yourself? I basically am just trying to be an artist now. I have three bodies of work that I want to put out. You I mean have you everything. have a bunch of original material that you're rated to record? Well, two of them are originals, and one of them is all covers that are reimagined, that sound nothing oh. like the originals. So, those bodies of work I want to put out. I am super excited about where I'm sitting in the scene in Seattle because there's a lot of people that are kind of recognizing my name now. So it's been helpful to really focus on the projects that I build at here, which is I have a nonprofit called Artist Way, where we do we connect with the city of Seattle to do pop up concerts all over the city. And then I have some touring dates. You know, there's some stuff I'm going to. Oh, you do? Yeah, I'm going to go to Nashville for the first time. And I'm going to go to New Orleans for the first time. Is it just you or are you going with a band? That's the question, isn't it? Do you, do you need a bass player? I'll go out with you. <laughs> <laughs> Get it on the record! I'm re- I got to start practicing. <laughs> yes! Oh, my gosh. You're hired. <laughs> All right. Quit my day job and go on the right. road with Shana Shepard. I can pay break. you on a burger a day. That's, yeah. Really a good burger though. Yeah. <laughs> but it's been so great for me because first of all, I'm a music fan and I'm, I'm a fan of yours. You're a musician. And and a musician. And, and it's fun to see it all kind of come together. And it feels like, and you mentioned during the pandemic, was hard getting work right. during the pandemic. And we had a job to offer. And it was just a couple days and it wasn't a huge thing, but everyone seemed so appreciative and kind of into it and then out of that we've got this song that feels kind of like this authentic real thing that's ours you know it's not something we just bought off the shelf from some company that doesn't know anything about Nordstrom it feels like all is connected and fast forward to where we are now and like and you've had all this exposure and you've played with these different people and there's videos out there and you've done interviews and I was actually just walking through the store before we started our podcast. And I don't know if you know it, that song is playing internally in the, Are you serious? every store across the company. <laughs> and I said, you're going to do it. Yes. You're going to play that song to make people nauseated. We're going to play it. <laughs> it's going to be on the playlist every month. So it's on there. Yeah. And so if you haven't pe- had people tell you yet, I heard I, it today. Okay. I'm going to just sit in there and just shop. Until and I the song's <laughs> another you. And it's yes. amazing. And again, I'm just, I'm really happy I've gotten to know you. You're, you're mm. a great person. You're a talented person. And I'm glad this has all worked out really well. Me too. It's been great. Well, thank you for having me.
Well, that's the show. If you want to learn more about the 15% Pledge, and I suggest you do, it's really pretty amazing, go to 15percentpledge.org. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom, so if you have a story about how you received great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you might just hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy, drop us a line, and be part of the Nordy Pod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with President and CEO of Levi Strauss, Chip Berg. This company has a long track record of not being afraid to take stands on important social issues or to be out there. It goes all the way back to the founder, Levi Strauss himself. He believed, and we have believed since the inception of this company, that businesses exist more than just to make a buck for the shareholder, that businesses exist to make a difference in the world, to make a difference in their community. Chip is a very inspiring CEO with a strong moral compass. He has a track record of leading successful brands and does so with an earth-conscious and community-centric mindset. We're glad to be partnered with Levi's, and I'm excited to share their story with you on the next episode of The Nordy Pod.